So first, the reading of God's word from Genesis chapter 2, the first three verses. This is the word of God. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day. He made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And now I'd like to read from Exodus chapter 20. You know this account very well. We just made this a framework for our pledge of obedience. It's the giving of the Ten Commandments. And I'll simply read... Verses 8 to 11, the fourth commandment. Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Amen. Let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing for the preaching of his word. We're glad to be here, O Lord. Glad to be receiving now the rainfall of your word. Lord Jesus, your word. It's our prayer that not only would you give that rain, but our hearts will be soil that receives it, soaks it up. It's our prayer that you will make us fruitful by it. in All the ways that please you. This is our hunger and our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. By a not very technical measure... I observe to you that God has more to say in the fourth commandment, the Sabbath commandment, than any of the other nine. Though the second commandment does vie for that place. The fourth commandment, God invests so much in explaining why he's calling his people to keep the Sabbath holy. And of course... As we know so well in this congregation, in the fourth commandment, unlike any other commandment of the ten, he grounds what he's calling for among his people in the way that he created the heavens and the earth. So the fourth commandment is calling on God's people to keep holy that which God first made holy on the seventh 
day. So uh, we're being called to imitate God in his work of creation. We're to imitate him in his six-day work, and we're to imitate him on his seventh day of rest. We're to do what he did when he was working, and then we're to do what he did when he was resting. So if we were studying the Ten Commandments and we got to number four, we would be turning backwards in our Bibles to the book of Genesis and we'd be looking at what it points us back to. But we've not been studying the Ten Commandments. We've been studying Genesis. So what we're going to do is consider first God's own day of rest as we will learn about it in Genesis chapter 2. God's own Sabbath as he reveals it to us in Genesis 2. And then we're going to move forward from there for a change. And we're going to look at our privilege, as it's summed up in the fourth commandment, to imitate God as creator. So let's do these three things this morning. Let's look at what God did on his day of rest. Then we'll look at what Adam did on God's day of rest. And then we'll look at what we are invited to do on God's day of rest. So first, what did God do on his day of rest? This first point will be partially some review and some amplification of one of the points from last week that this whole sermon is resting on, the nature of God's rest on the seventh day. We said last week this has nothing to do with God needing to be recuperated in his energies after all of his exertions. We saw that this actually doesn't even mean that God was entering into a state of total inactivity. As creator, he was now moving to the sustainer of all the universe. We saw last week that this word rest, the word Shabbat in the Hebrew, which means to stop, represents God ceasing from his creation work in all of its supernatural wonder ceasing from it because he had brought it to perfection. It was to his own divine specs, as we might say. So he ceased his creative work. What did he begin to do? Well, we had gotten hints about this along the way. We had seen at the end of each day that he sort of steps back and surveys what he's done, and he praises his own work. He says it's good, and we heard in that a sense of his satisfaction, even his pleasure in what he had made. So we had some hints of that along the way, but last week, with the help of Exodus chapter 31, which speaks of God refreshing himself, On the seventh day, we realized that what he did at the end of each day, he was now devoting a whole day to. A whole day devoted to the purpose of delight. God delighting in these great feats of creation and what they had resulted. Now, I didn't use this expression last week, but it's occurred to me that we could say it this way. On the seventh day, God was resting in his good works. He was finding satisfaction and delight in what he had done. Now, that's an expression we actually warn ourselves against having anything to do with in the realm of redemption, right? We actually say we are not to rest in our good works for salvation. And what we mean is 
the very same sense of rest, we're not to find in our good works something so inherently satisfactory or sufficient that they would merit eternal reward. We say we are not to rest in our good works, but it's different with God. God's works are infinitely good and pure, and it's his prerogative to rest in them, to take delight in his own work. Brothers and sisters, this is why he created everything. He certainly didn't create things in order to impress some rival deity. You know that. He didn't create the cosmos like we create things to see how much it would go for on the open market. He didn't create things, all things, just to see if he could. None of these are reasons in the divine will for creating the cosmos. This is the reason he created everything as the triune God to give him something else, something yet more to delight in. Creation was a means of expressing delight within the persons of the Godhead, and that spilled over into this world which they made together. And so Psalm 104, as we saw last week, is the reason why God created all things. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. I wanted you to have a picture on this seventh day of a happy God. A God at rest, enjoying the reflection of his own glory in all the things that he had made. Now today, reminding you of these things, I want to further remind you that this involved in God's heart towards all that he had made a certain, specific kind of love. God is loving what he made as he delights in it on that seventh day. And I've shared this with you in the past, and because it's one of my favorite subjects, I'm going to share it with you again. Our fathers speak of that particular kind of love in the heart of God with this old-fashioned language. Some of you will remember it. God's love of complacency. That's especially relevant for our considering the seventh day and the Sabbath and the rest of God. God was, in the old sense of the word, complacent. On that day. Now that's so confusing because we use the word now very differently than our fathers used to use it. The word complacency now is a somewhat negative thing. It just sounds like some teenager, perhaps, no offense, teenagers, who just sits back and does nothing. They should be doing something, but they're just sitting back and doing nothing. But once upon a time, in the use of the English language, someone was complacent if they were sitting back, as it were, and enjoying something, when they simply are occupied with nothing else, they look inactive, but they're doing nothing else but simply loving what they're seeing and what they're savoring. That's what complacency used to mean before it became a negative thing. And so our theological fathers speak of the love of complacency in God. That goes with rest. Don't you see? He's resting in his good work. He's enjoying what he's made. And of course he should. It's perfect. It's magnificent. And note this. Inasmuch as there is one particular thing he's made, 
that is the crown jewel of all the cosmos, that would be you and me. Inasmuch as Adam, man, is the greatest of all his feats on creation week, he would have been giving himself in all of his delight in creation, especially to delighting in that little chip off the old block, if I may speak that way, in that creature who bears his own image. Now, that may be a little hard for us to imagine. Adam and Eve, along with all the rest of the cosmos, being the object for a full day of such loving and delighted attention by the Creator. That may be kind of hard for us to imagine. God giving himself over to just delighting in creation, especially man. Maybe hard for us to imagine that because it may be hard for us to imagine that God finds anything in us to be pleased with, to be delighted in. But friends, here's my good news for you this morning. This thing I've been calling God's love of complacency or his love of delight did not end on the seventh day. Now, to be sure, there was a great deal in the entrance of sin into the world that interrupted and brought a mixture of pleasure and displeasure, if I may so speak, in the heart of God as he looks at creation. And we do rightly value so much another kind of love in the heart of God, not just the love of complacency, but the love of benevolence is what it's typically called, the love in God for sinners, despite the fact that they are displeasing to him, the love of God even for his enemies who are in no way satisfactory to him, his love for the sole reason then that he is a loving God. That's a precious teaching of Scripture, a second kind of God's love. It provides tremendous security for us as sinners. He will love us no matter what because he's died for us. He's a God of love. But let's not forget that God in salvation is restoring over time more and more in us that which is delightful to him. Which is another way of saying he is doing a work that is restoring in his heart towards us this love of complacency, this love of delight This second kind of love is something I think many Christians have no concept of. They know that God in Christ Jesus loves them despite all their sins. Praise be to God. But they don't have any sense when he looks at them as the creator of all the earth. He can be delighted. The good news is, it's both. He's devoted to you despite your sins and failures. That's one kind of love. He's delighted with you as you sincerely seek to please him. Psalm 149, as we heard it last week, says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. 
He adorns the humble with salvation. I am not saying to you, brothers and sisters, that there's only one day of the week where you're pleasing to God because that's the only day that he's going to love you with a love of complacency. I'm not saying that. I am saying that this is what he devotes himself to on that day. That's the reason he sets this day apart for himself. What is God doing on his day of rest? He's giving himself in a special way to delighting in his creatures. Just loving what he's just made. That's what God did on his day of rest. And I'm hoping, as I continue, to show you that God's delight on that first Sabbath has everything to do with how we think of this day set aside. So let's look secondly at what Adam did on God's day of rest. So if God spent that last day of creation simply devoting himself to enjoying what he'd made, how do you think Adam spent the day? He's been created on the sixth day. How did Adam spend the seventh day? While God is devoting himself to resting in his good work of creation, particularly Adam and Eve, how did he spend the day? Well, you could well imagine that Adam and Eve would be, in God's eyes, like little children in their really, really, really cute phase with parents who are absolutely adoring parents, little children who are playing on the living room floor, perhaps, oblivious to anything but what they're exploring and and doing and You can imagine uh, those parents, many of you are in this stage of life, just sitting there, so adorable, so beautiful, so above average, amazing. You can imagine that. You can imagine that being this kind of scenario, God taking delight in an oblivious Adam and Eve, but God didn't actually create Adam as a child. He didn't create him as an oblivious child. He created Adam and Eve as fully mature adults. So of all the things that were new to see and to explore, surely Adam would have recognized this as the greatest, knowing my creator and enjoying him as the source of everything else that is. Now, This summary account that we've looked at in chapter 1 leaves a lot to our imagination, but it does include even the summary account of the creation of Adam in Genesis 1. It includes God speaking to him. We've looked at those words, first words that God gives. Now, we can presume there was any number of other things that he said, but we are given the most significant thing from that point. So we don't have to have any doubt that God, having created Adam introduces himself to him. We have no doubt of that. And so Adam knows the difference between the creation and the creator from the very get-go. We're not speculating to conclude that. So on this first day of Adam's existence, notice, first full day of Adam's existence, when God is devoting himself to delighting in him, along with the rest of creation, it's not hard to surmise what Adam was doing in response. The day would have been a day of delight for him as well, a day of love 
the love that I've been talking about, the love of complacency or delight in him. It was a day for Adam as well to sit back, as it were, to rest in the wonder and the joy of his creator God. Now, I think it would be fair to say that Adam, in his unfallen intuition, could have grasped all this without any help from God. If my creator is delighting in me, I ought to delight in him. But Genesis 2 actually tells us something that God did that would have made it crystal clear for Adam that his intention was for Adam to join him in his delight. So, after telling us what God did, On the seventh day, in verse 2, we read in verse 3, So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he'd done in creation. What I want you to see is that there's a movement from verse 2 to verse 3. Verse 3 takes us beyond something that God simply resolved to do himself. Verse 3 is taking us beyond that. It's telling us of something God did to ensure that others would follow his example. He blessed the day. He made it holy. An illustration comes to mind this particular Sunday. In 1984, President Ronald Reagan did something more than set aside for himself a day of remembrance called the Sanctity of Human Life, or Sanctity of Human Life Day. Uh, He actually issued a proclamation designating it the National Sanctity of Human Life Day. He could do that. He was president. He did it on the 11th anniversary of Roe v. Wade. And you know what he was doing. He was calling the nation to do what he himself thought best to do. Something like that is happening here. There's a proclamation that's recorded for us in the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. Something on a much grander scale than my illustration. God is setting aside a day for himself to delight in his creatures, and he's taking steps to ensure that he will not be alone in observing the day and in entering into the delight. So I think you could say, apart even from the fourth commandment's clarity that eventually would come, We can deduce what God did, chapter 2, verse 3, and how it had implications for Adam and Eve. God blessed the day and made it holy, and so that meant Adam and Eve were going to do that themselves. By the way, that's why there's Sabbath observance in the Old Testament before the Ten Commandments are given. Genesis 16, we have a reference to the Israelites keeping the Sabbath as the manna comes to them from the sky by God's miraculous provision. They keep the Sabbath, and then only later in Exodus 20 do we have the fourth commandment. It's because the Sabbath is what our fathers called a creation ordinance. It's one of the things so important to the Creator for His creatures to join Him in that He embeds in the creation week His own example And his word about what we're to do. By the way, it seems appropriate to highlight that the very first appearance of an exceedingly important word in the scriptures, Old and New Testament, shows up in verse 3. 
first time, though far from the last time, the word holy appears in the Bible. The day of God's rest is a day that God makes holy. He sets it apart from the other six days. That's how you make a day holy. You do something different on that day. So kids, we've been asking the question, what did Adam actually do on God's day of rest? And we have to admit there's some details we have no idea. We don't know what time he got up. Don't know time he got out of bed. We don't know what he had for breakfast. Right, kids? Not told that. We don't know if he took a walk or when he took a walk or where he took a walk. We don't know if he took a Sunday afternoon nap, which is especially easy to do when it's a rainy Sunday. But we do know, kids, one thing that Adam didn't do. Later in chapter 2, we're going to read in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Oh, God has a job for Adam. But given what God had done, and given what he had done about the day, we know that's one thing Adam didn't do. He didn't work. His first full day of life was a holy day. God had a big job for him to do, but first... God wanted Adam to devote himself just to delighting in God as the one who had just made him. I I find it interesting that in terms of God's experience of the work week, if I may speak that way, the Sabbath was on the seventh day. But in terms of how Adam actually experienced it, it was his first full day on the planet. This would have been the day that his relationship with his creator got launched. Adam would have been in awe of what he learned of God. He would have expressed that awe. There would have been fellowship between them. All these things, brothers and sisters, as we discern what we can about Adam's first Sabbath day, all should sound very familiar to us, right? It very much corresponds with our own experience. No 9.30 service, 11.15 Sunday school with coffee in between for Adam, presumably. Maybe it would have looked like God in some visible form, the angel of Yahweh, perhaps. Visiting Adam and Eve, walking perhaps with them in the cool of the day, as we'll see a reference in chapter 3. Whatever it looked like in the specifics, here are those rudimentary elements of Adam's experience the first day that should be so familiar to you. God revealing himself, his people, Adam and Eve, worshiping him, and fellowship enjoyed. Does this sound familiar? Adam wouldn't have been tired. Okay, so that's different. Adam would not have been tired. He hadn't done anything yet. But he would have been refreshed. Westminster Catechism is actually not talking just about the Sabbath day. 
in its opening and most famous question and answer, talking about everything that we're to do, but it has a special and heightened relevance to the Sabbath day, this first day of Adam. Glorify God and enjoy him. That's what Adam did on God's day of rest. Let's look lastly at what we're invited to do on God's day of rest. Of course, in light of the fourth commandment, I could use a a stronger word than invite. I know that. I've said what we are invited to do on God's day of rest. But I'm wanting to make a point. God's willingness to share his day of delight with us is an immense privilege. That's the point I'm wanting to make using the word invite. What are we invited to do on God's day of rest? Now I'm wanting to look from the seventh day of creation to the fourth commandment in light of that. Perhaps you're aware, brothers and sisters, perhaps you're aware that there are Christians who disregard this particular commandment of the ten as if it was something unique to Judaism. But of course, the primary problem with that is that it runs aground of this built-in appeal in the fourth commandment to God's example in creation. This is why our fathers have recognized the Sabbath as something that transcends, like the other commandments in the Ten, the unique circumstances of Moses and the Israelites. Now, there are some significant changes in the way we celebrate. We celebrate on the first day of the week instead of the seventh. We celebrate not with the flesh of goats, rather with bread and wine. And one of the most significant dramatic differences is that we celebrate Jew and Gentile worldwide this day. But notice, nothing's changed in this fundamental sense. What moved God to establish the Sabbath, his delight in what he'd made, particularly his people, particularly now his redeemed people, that hasn't changed and it hasn't changed that God wants to be the delight of his creatures. He wants to be delighted in by us. That's not changed. Perhaps you know that the word Sabbath, especially the word Sabbatarian, carries connotations in our day of strict and law-minded Christians. Of course, the Sabbath is part of the law, indeed. And the law of God is fairly unpopular these days, granted. And any Christian who gets serious about the commandments of God is sooner or later probably going to be called a legalist, granted. But brothers and sisters, from a Genesis 2 perspective on the fourth commandment, The connotations of the word Sabbath, even the connotations of the word Sabbatarian, should be intensely pleasant. Indeed, 
delightful. A Sabbatarian Christian, someone who's committed to keeping the Sabbath in obedience to the fourth commandment in light of what God did on the seventh day. A Sabbatarian Christian. You know what you should think of when you think of a Sabbatarian Christian? You should think of a romantic fellow. There's parallel between those two expressions. A romantic fellow, well, that, that has very positive connotations. We know what a romantic fellow is like. He's in love with somebody, and he's looking for opportunities to be with that person. And when those opportunities arise, he's all about it. That is the paradigm I have sought to preach and teach in this congregation for the last whatever it is, years. We would call it a romantic paradigm. The Sabbath. Christians view the Sabbath should be like a lover's view of his next date. His most beloved. It's an opportunity. It's an invitation. He wants to be with me. To devote ourselves to the thing that most delights our hearts. Uh, My testimony, as I've shared before, is that I fell in love with the Sabbath Not until college, my college years. Uh, Now, I was a worship rat before that. You know, you've heard of gym rats. Well, a worship rat, somebody who actually really wanted to be in worship. It's a good thing. Somebody who saw the value of the services that bring God's people into... I'm thankful that didn't have to wait till college. But that whole day part... Like that one-seventh of my life part? (laughs) Well, it took the pressures and the independence and the personal engagement with God that I went through in college, many people do, where I realized, oh, I get it. I get it. I get what God wants. God wants time because God wants time relationship. They go together. I languish in my relationship with the Lord when I don't have time with him and the primary provision that he's made to ensure that the lovers here, God and his redeemed people have time, is the day. It's the day. And all of a sudden the day looked like all kinds of things. I wanted to cram into, not just things that I had to put aside. There are things that would promote that, both privately and with God's people. And no, I wasn't I didn't all arrive in college. I just first fell in love with the Sabbath then. I think some of us have never fallen in love with the Sabbath, though. Praise be to God, we're sanctuary rats. We're here. Praise be to God. It's a work of his grace. What would it take to fall in love with the Sabbath? Time that remains, I have two things that you may have never thought about. I want to make sure you've thought about it today. Two things. Number one, our struggles to keep the Sabbath are ultimately due to our struggle to delight in the Creator. Why does God's invitation of a Sabbath rest so easily get the shrug from God's people 
Well, there's a very obvious reason if you just think honestly about it for a moment. Brothers and sisters, it's nothing less than this. Our inclination and our very ability to delight ourselves in God has been broken by sin. Sin's done that to us. Of all the many things it's done, it's taken away our appetite. It's taken away our capacity to delight in that which is the most delightful thing inherently. God himself. That's what sin has done to us. So it's not natural to delight in God anymore. And the delight that we do have, it's not self-sustaining. There are many other things that compete with it. And this, of course, is not just a Sabbath discussion. It's our whole lives. We're not the lovers of God in the sense of complacent delight in God that we were created to be. And I'm saying, if this has never occurred to you, uh, that we need to look here first, because this whole subject of Sabbath keeping is a fairly cluttered subject. There are so many practical questions that arise, so many questions. They're legitimate about what kind of work has to stop, and what kind of work is actually that work of necessity. There are all kinds of things that we can consider about how to prepare for the day, or spend the hours of the day, or lead our families in it, or pursuing fellowship with each other. All those things practically can clutter our minds. I'm making an observation at the tap root level of it all. Struggles to keep the Sabbath stem from delight deficit. It's a hard issue. And it is actually the issue of all our days. Think of the family man who's a hopeless workaholic. Never home. Never at his kid's game. Never spends time with his wife. What's his real problem? Well, we might want to say, uh, his problem is obviously he's making an idol of work. Well, fair, true. More deeply, he doesn't love his family. He doesn't love his family. Or there is a big problem with his love for his family. See it? See it? What's the problem with the Sabbath breaker who treats the day like any other day? Well, it's typically not the problem with the things being done themselves. It's what's missing. It's that delight that God has in his hearts to us that goes unrequited. So I'm, all, I'm asking for honesty. And I'm asking you to confess this with me. And resolve what we just resolved under Elder Cleveland's leadership. By your grace, we will devote ourselves to the purpose of the Lord's Day and delight in the fellowship with you that it brings. Lord, you know my heart. You know my heart's not where it should be. But I resolve afresh to do what Isaiah tells the people of God to do long ago, to call your Sabbath a delight because it's the means, the primary means you've given for me to delight myself in you. 
That's the first thing I wonder if you've ever considered. Here's the second thing that may be helpful in all of our struggles in this particular area of Sabbath keeping. The opportunity the Sabbath provides is to enter into the delight of our Creator. Here's the particular thing I want us to be refreshed by and galvanized by and motivated by. It is not as if God, in all of his frowning displeasure at us, says, I want more delight. Oh, okay. That's not what he's doing. He sets apart this day. Listen to Calvin. He's so severe, except... He's not. God cannot either more gently allure or more effectively to incite us to obedience than by inviting and exhorting us to the imitation of himself. This is what Calvin's saying. God is himself full of joy and happiness and rest in us. Now, not the perfected Adam, but the being the recreated Adams that we are in his son. He delights himself in us. He still has this pattern of delighting in us on these particular days as humans measure time. And he's calling on us to enter into his delight. This is actually the way heaven is spoken of. Jesus speaks of it that way. Enter into the joy of your master. That's what whole of heaven's going to be. It's going to be like that, that first full day of Adam's existence, just basking in the delight of God in him. That's what heaven's going to be. And he's inviting us. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's astonishing. It's almost too good to be true. He's inviting us, despite our sins, to enter into Adam's rest which is his own rest. Creature, the creator, in a state of mutual delight. God delights first. God loves first. He invites you to enter into his delight. Not to delight in him so he'll see something delightful in you. (laughs) He delights in you. Invites you to come and savor that. To delight in him in response. That's why our Puritan fathers call the Sabbath a little taste. We'd say appetizer for heaven. Friends, sisters, here's the invitation I press to you. To call it something else. It is in the Ten Commandments. But here's the invitation I press to you. The creator of heaven and earth is mindful of you on this weekly day in a special way. There's something mysterious about that. He's eager for your adoration on that day in a special way. He's delighting in you as his handiwork, both in creation now and in redemption, in a special way. The day was actually made for you, our Savior tells us, because you're the one who needs refreshment of all its proportions. It's designed for you by the same one who magnificently engineered everything else in the cosmos. And this with it. So give yourself to delighting in the Lord on this Christian Sabbath day.
that you may be refreshed, that you may partake of the delight of your creator. Amen. Let's pray together. First, Lord, first, we say together, we're so ashamed. We're so ashamed that you'd have to command it. Our sin and weakness and dullness of heart. We're so ashamed that we've been so delinquent if not in our outward patterns of the day, at least in the heart which we've pursued them. So, shamed, there is so much vice for our delight this particular day and these particular opportunities. Oh, Lord, we come to you like we do with all our sins and sinful failings We ask you that you would make them invisible by the blood of Christ. May they not take away your delight in us because he has taken them to himself. We pray that you will again and again revive us and revive us at that very core of our hearts to love what is ultimately lovely, our creator, our redeemer. And we thank you now, and we thank you, second, that your delight to us is not only something you have, but that you share, something that you have and you tell us about, that you assure us of, that you pile high the evidences of. We thank you for that love of delight is our greatest possession. And we ask you for joy and delight in entering into it. Thank you, O Lord, for all that you provide us. Opportunities at the end of each day, the beginning of each day, throughout each day, to reflect, even in passing, on the delights of our Creator. Thank you especially for a whole day that you've devised for this so we ask, receive our penitent praise and our earnest thanksgiving for the day of delight you've made. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.